Good evening, everyone. Um, that was very special. Um, and if you want it darker, then I urge you to tune into episode two as soon as it comes on, because your jaw, your jaw will be on the floor. Um, please, Michaela Cole, Hugo Blick, and Harry Walter. Um, first of all, congratulations to all of you on a fantastic first episode. Um, Hugo, if I could start with you. Most, I mean, most dramatists would like to think they tackle the you know, difficult issues. Um, but, you know, the Honourable Woman went into the West Bank. Then there's this. I mean, you, you're sort of wading into ethical quagmires, basically, with this. Stuff, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. why, why the ICC? Why Rwanda this time? Oh, I was just trying to find a comedy. <laughs> just <laughs> didn't land. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in trauma and its, its aftermath. Um, I think it works on, uh, on a filmic scale because it's in, it can be international and it can be entirely individual. And obviously it's the individual that we as an audience empathize with. But there are issues and stories about trauma that perhaps we're not aware of, or at least we don't know the nuance and balance of it. And I suppose I've managed to find a... A, a terrain and a vehicle in a sort of thriller that allows us to take an audience on a journey uh, through the issues confronted by our lead characters um, that feels unfamiliar uh, but also universal um, because the experiences of life, of having a vacuum in your in your identity and who you think you are, what you're pursuing, what you know, what you don't, is something that is quite universal. And I suppose stories like this touch on that, even though it's very specific. Uh, but it engages an audience because it says something to them. I mean, as you said, it's very specific. It's, it's the International Criminal Course and it's Rwanda. Why, why was that the prism you wanted to examine? Well, it's not where I started. Uh, the, the destination of arrival of, of, of what you've watched isn't what I began with. I had been researching uh, for the Honourable Woman. I'd come across, um, well, obviously, the Nuremberg trials. And I thought, oh, I wonder what has happened with the institutionalization, uh, becoming an institute of these tribunals. Um, so as I began looking and researching, um, I found that the ICC uh, had institutionalized that pursuit uh, of international war crimes after its uh, uh, ratification in, in 2000. Um, so in the beginnings of that research, I, I was surprised to, well, I mean, some, in some ways not surprised, but a little bit surprised to find that most, if not all, of the formal indictments against uh, alleged war criminals as individuals which is what it does. We're all African, and then we're all black African. That surprised me. Um, there are many, many other situations are being investigated, and it's very much hoped that uh, the ICC will widen its interest globally. But at this point in time, or at the point in time of my research, that's what I found. So that's intriguing, just in terms of, of its uh, um, ethical aspiration but then in the trouble that that brings by being a Western organization, um, installing Western ideas of justice onto other societies other than their own. I thought that was uh, an, an interest or tension to explore and understand. And then in the DRC, uh, where a number of individuals uh, that the ICC are pursuing, 
some are much more expected, uh, despite the fact they can only uh, prosecute individuals after their ratification in 2000 or after the time that a country has joined. So they were, they were indicting individuals who had alleged crimes in DRC after 2004. The individuals were still participants in the genocide previously. So they were after the villains. That made sense. But then I was really quite puzzled to find that, again, for alleged crimes after the DRC joined the ICC in 2004, they were also indicting a number of individuals who had been in participation of helping bring the genocide to a close, to an end. So they were also chasing heroes you know, in the public es estimation. So there you go. You've got all of that. You've got a Western institutional organization of ethical understanding comprehensive empathy, pursuing both heroes and, well, villains and heroes in an environment in which you wonder why that needs to happen. Well, that's the story. Yeah. What, what, what are the primary sort of ethical responsibilities as a filmmaker telling a story that's got, I mean, it's a relatively recent human tragedy and still very raw yeah. for, for a lot of people. What, what, are, what are the things you kind of have to consider when you set about something like You mean that? the genocide? Yeah. Well, OK. Um, the genocide, uh, in terms of um, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, my interest, was the aftermath. So I'm interested, essentially, in the traumatic aftermath of what happens, the aftershocks of what happens in a situation such as that. Strangely, uh, actually, uh, within a, the filmic environment, the story of the genocide is well known and well known to audiences. So you have um, uh, Hotel Rwanda, Shooting Dogs, others. Um, and, and the uh, task set for us, for me, was to present the genocide in a way that the audience didn't actually think they already knew it. The danger was it would be something that actually horrifically, horrific though it is, that they would not really see because they'd seen it before. So one of the challenges was to present that part um, in animation, in fact, to try and give it a different viewpoint so that you could see it freshly again and the cost of it on individuals. But part of that, that story, really, it was to reincorporate the genocide, our story, to reincorporate the genocide. But really, it was to pursue the aftermath of the genocide. And therefore, it's a secret history, really, about what happened in the Congolese wars after the genocide. And it's estimated, though it, it, it is disputed. But let's not quibble between whether it was two or six million people who lost their lives uh, between 96 and 2003. Um, and this was a time, as it was you know, happening, that we just don't know about. Now, we know about the Holocaust, but we don't know about that. Mm. So you asked, is it ethically, all those issues. Well, when people don't know about something, and when you try and pursue your, and arrange your uh, comprehension of it, your research of it, to be truthful and authentic, then I think it slightly behoves you. It doesn't matter your nationality, your ethnicity, your gender. You, you, you need to pursue the story in such a way as I hope that it engages the audience in that universality that I was saying, because it's about an individual. Mm. Um, but it was a secret, and it's not known. Um, and that's another reason to tell it. Okay. Um, Harriet, this isn't the first lawyer you've played. What made, what made Eve Ashby stand out for you as a, as a character? It's a very different kind of lawyer. Um, I think 
what I loved was the combination of somebody who, um, who is a, you know, a completely legal mind who plays by the book in all sorts of ways and has got where she's got because she's got that kind of experience. But at the same time, through this, this adventure in her, you know, in her life, she has personalized um, in her, you know, by adopting this daughter from the Rwandan conflict, she's personalized the, if you like, the politics, the philosophy that she's um, pursued as a lawyer. This has become a sort of almost a conflict of, of a sort of ethical conflict in her own mind, which is presented right up front, mm. which I appreciate from Hugo, that the very first scene sort of posits, you know, how dare you, as, as a white woman, you know, be... Um, be investigating this in this way, uh, the sort of things she's been investigating. Um, and so by putting that interrogation right at the beginning, um, her defense of it, if you like, is, um, is, is sort of seen to be a bit fragile. Mm. But then you as the story unfolds, you understand what her dilemma is. Um, it personalizes the legal situation and it and it kind of legitimizes the the emotional situation. So, I think I would, plus it's a it's a it's a multi important um, sort of international question rather mm. than some of the lawyers I played in. You know, I put to you, my lad, that on the Thursday <laughs> evening you murdered. So, you know, that's kind of very different. Yeah. How did the, for you and Michaela actually? How did um, taking part in this drama, sort of expand your knowledge or change your perspective on, on the Rwandan genocide, what, what you knew of it before and what you now Well, well what, what Hugo outlined is that you were very familiar with sort of 94, and all, but not really what happened afterwards. Mm. And, and the, also the European, the, the French and the British kind of historical input. Um, which we go on to explore. Which we, yes, which, yes. The, Stick with it, you'll learn a hell of a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. um, I think, well, just, I think that, you know, the, so it, it does interrogate and, and kind of challenge your sort of very liberal kind of reactions. And, um, you, you know, but what, what I like about the character that I play is that she got right in with her, arm, with her sleeves rolled up mm. and took this problem on if you like I mean what what do you do with a with a with a young with a traumatized child when you haven't got a sort of situation to back them up you know that was a was almost as you as the story unfolds you realize it was a complete necessity but in a way the daughter personifies the lesson that she has to learn in bringing her up mm. you know and whether to let her go whether to how much information to give her uh, all those questions that all parents have sort of multiplied by a zillion um, because this is such a delicate person mm. who I then let get pr cleverer than me, you know, overtake me. Well, the, I think in the background of, those, of, those, of that relationship was that um, Eve Ashby's intent, I think, was to armor her adopted daughter with both privilege mm. and education um, in order, because she'd been so touched by evil, in a way that, that we again go on to explore. 
but the thing, of course, again, when you know, when you do that to someone in terms of drama, you're going to do the first things you're going to do is take the privilege and the education away. So you're going to strip her back, mm. place her in the unfamiliar, find that all the things that will make you know yourself better, reconcile yourself to your past, you have to find fresh and new. Because it's that Faulkner thing about the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. Mm. That means that actually everything you experience prepares you for your future. So you have to go through it fresh each time. Mm. And that gets you prepared to be a human. But it's your past that does it. And you ha she has to go and find it mm. without all this armature that her mother is kind of brittly, if you don't mind me saying, <laughs> um, rather brittly placed upon her. Mm. And, and we see that. We see something of that in the architecture of their environs, in her accent, in all the things that we discussed when we sort of saw Kate. Mm. Um, and all of that has to come off. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think for me, initially I got a call from my agent just saying Hugo Blick, and I had seen Shadowline. Uh, it was one of the first things I saw uh, when I wanted to become an actor. Then I got the scripts and was kind of perplexed and embarrassed at my lack of knowledge about the whole thing. I was like talking to my mom, like, did you know about this? My mom was like, yes, why didn't I know? She's like, I don't know, you're a kid and you went to a really shit school. So um, I then kind of, uh, you know, maybe what propelled me through the whole thing was in a way, as I said earlier, trying to find some kind of um, re redemption for my ignorance, uh, I, I tried to meet this uh, character who had so much going on, and I was a world away from her. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's what attracted me to it. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's a fascinating, char really charged mother-daughter relationship. And in the therapy session, we see um, Kate says so she she doesn't know who she's supposed to connect with. I mean, does that include her mother? Because that's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, I think the, the strange kind of catch-22 is that the one and only love in her life is the one person she feels like there's, there's this constant conflict, yes, yeah. because she wants answers, they have different opinions. It's almost, in a way, like two different generations uh, kind of combating each other. And, yeah, I think that's the, one of the saddest things for her. Her mum is... is her rock and her only anchor that she can ever remember having. Mm. And it feels like I've controlled the narrative all the time. Yeah. I've meted out this information or that information mm. all through her life, thinking I'm doing the best thing for her, I presume, you know, but, you know, actually thinking I was protecting her from revisiting trauma but wanting her to move on is, is a parallel of the paternalistic attitude of, you mm. know, close up the gap, move on, forget the past, you know, that, that as an international community we, we try to put onto. So in the microcosm was the macro. Yeah, I mean, I wondered how much of the, um, Kate becoming a legal investigator was Kate and how much of that was Eve. Um, well, it's definitely a wing because the, the uh, increasingly, as the story goes on, the, the, the Formidy Street Chambers becomes also a kind of the home, the womb, the security. The, the legal chambers that we find the characters in uh, becomes Kate's security increasingly. So it's definitely seems as if it was a 
I mean, it seems as if you're quite controlling and manipulative. Well, that's what I, sort of I, I, sort of I don't like the word <laughs> manipulative, but I think controlling in a sense of, you know, <laughs> you wrote it. But I am. <laughs> I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised. I think, you know, I think it's just a really, it, it, it could go on forever, but it's a very extreme case of how parents control or manipulate children. You know, and uh, you know, we all do it all the time. We we control what, how much they know, and how they digest that information from the blank year dot. In her case, it's like when she was she was eight or whatever. And, but, but that prehistory, I don't know about, and she hasn't got recall of. So there's so, yeah, I think she is controlling. But it's kind of. That's what I mean. Paternalistic is wrong because it's maternalistic, mm. but it's it, it's parental. Mm. Um, you know how to to guide someone, you know, as best you can towards survival, and then it all comes crashing down when she tries to kill herself, and all my confidence in what I've been doing is and shattered. Right. Yeah, mm. and also it, it 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 will come to pass, and when you, when it comes to pass, a little like we were discussing about the. Responsibilities of because you know at this first scene of this episode we talk about the, 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 the what is against the idea of the ICC and at the end you hear her short speech to say that we bring justice to those who have no hope to have it otherwise and in the end I think your choices that you make for your adopted daughter um, have all the negatives that we've just discussed but they also have the positives that we get to understand as a later point you kind of didn't have a choice yeah. And the greater the greater evil would be the shock of the truth at a certain time, and you had to make that. At concept. least she's. I mean, the the, the kickoff of the, the, this whole episode is her attempted suicide, which sort of does make Eve really question. You know, should I have told her before? Should I not tell her ever? Should I? You know, I mean mm. that 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 somehow is. It sort of makes her. I find her more sympathetic for that, really, because at least she's questioning it. Um, Hugo, what, what made you think of John Goodman for? <laughs> I, 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 I like uh, actors who have a comedic dis disposition, um, I, 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 especially in these kind of, uh, kind of you know, heavy, heavy dramas. Um, you, you sort of want to go on a journey into the story with people who... By, if you have a comedic sensibility towards whatever role, it just means you have a looseness, a sort of jazz play to it, and it syncopates your delivery, which is fascinating to me to watch. It doesn't feel particularly kind of standardized, or it's what I do. It seems loose and uh, of the moment. And, and Goodman was really interesting. He, he, he would never do <laughs> same take twice, but he, he would, but they, they would be very subtly different. He would, you know, he had a mountain to do. He had like 12 weeks of work being a lawyer, so that's a lot of wordage. So he really had to focus like this on the scenes. In any moment, I kind of come in to tell him, this is the bit, you know, don't waste it all on your, on your wides. I'm coming in for this close up. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> and so then he would do two takes of value. You do as many takes as you like. But two takes of value, and both of them were subtly different. And each of them were kind of like a jazz play. But what was really impressive is in the edit. Because you kind of think this guy's jazzing it, and therefore he's just sort of doing something that's interesting in every scene. That's fine. But when you link it together, and it's not just me projecting on it, because I've seen what he's doing. You see an eight-hour project, and he's put a line through it. 
and you see where the character goes right until the final period. And it's, oh my God, I didn't see you play that. Mm. So as much as he's jazz, he's doing a jazz symphony and he was doing it. He had that energy and commitment to the invention, which wasn't always clear on set, but you saw it in the edit. Mm. Michaela, is there, I mean, is there a downside to working on a show where the director, producer, writer, yes. and also <laughs> actor is, is, is one and the same? Like... Honestly, and if there like, was a downside, I would say there's a downside. It's very relieving um, as someone who has produced and run shows to be able to go, I just do acting. <laughs> I just focus on the, character, the one character. I don't have to run around doing rewrites in the evening, coming back in. Uh, I didn't do any of that. Uh, it makes it very simple, to be honest with you. Um, you feel like... I felt like this is what I went to drama school for, which I guess when you do chewing gum, when you're doing everything, it, it doesn't feel like that. But this feels very much about the craft of acting, which was uh, really, really, really great to do. Hmm. Yes. And Hugo, you are, you are back acting again as a barrister, it says here, caustically intelligent, hugely gifted, oh. with an epicurean <laughs> taste for the finer things in life. Really? You, you wrote that for yourself? Uh. I, no, it's not, that's a new one on me. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought he was like a racist nihilist. Well, <laughs> two, two sides to every story. So there we go. Um, yes, question. Yeah. <laughs> Was, was, was that with a certain amount of trepidation? No, I think it's, um, um, I don't know. It's the only thing I was trained to do, so I went to drama school. Um, I spent a lot of my life uh, on a floor kind of teaching people, or not teaching, helping people who already know how to ride horses really, really well. Um, but just you know, maybe how to do it slightly differently might help. So it's supposed to be once in a while just get in the saddle. And then in terms of, the thing of that, I mean, it's really about quietening your mind uh, just, or changing the mindset. So given I'm a writer, director, producer, blah, 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 you know, it comes as a blessed relief mm. just to sit on set and say, guys, just point the camera, <laughs> see what happens. It's very pleasant. Um, it's Garner that acts as Miranda and, and the DRC in the, yeah. in the series. Why, why there? Well, the political issues that surround the later stages of the story uh, would make filming in uh, Eastern African region difficult. Um, but then, because of the, the nature of the research and the detail of trying to evoke a truthful and authentic environment, to go to a place such as South Africa, which would be more expected, is uh, topograph topologically, topographically completely wrong for the sub-Saharan environment. Whereas Ghana has a similar band, and climate, weather, and feel, to the DRC and to, to Rwanda. Um, and so we went there. Um, we, it was tricky because of um, uh, Idris Elba had gone in with Beasts of No Nation um, and had had a successful experience of it. Um, ours is just a little more robust. We were there for a little longer. We had a little larger, about 300, 400 people, and we had to build a few roads and go very, very deep into upcountry. Um, however, I just the way in which the Ghanaians received us, the way in which we were uh, assisted in our filmmaking endeavor, um, I would glibly and sort of like rather crudely say, and the lack of corruption, which is almost sort of an irritating thing to have to always say, but it is nonetheless true that certain countries with filmic environment, like all the equipment you bring in, can suffer from that. Ghana, not a piece of it, not a bit of that. 
absolutely you know, straight, and I found it a very, very purpose purposeful place. Um, I was really impressed. Great. Okay. Well, I think we'll open it up to the floor. Please don't take your lead from that and swear at anyone on stage, especially not Harriet Walsh. <laughs> I think um, there, are some, <laughs> there, are some, there are some roving mics. Um, so, uh, yeah. So. Hello. Hi. Um, what were the most interesting and funny memories of working with John Goodman on this project? Oh. Oh, well, uh, as it goes um, through, uh, everybody, uh, well, well, we'll see. Um, everybody of significance has, has to vomit um, you know, on screen. It's a kind of purging thing for the characters uh -huh. that I'm kind of keen on seeing. Um, and that we did well. We, we did some good vomit. But John, John, he's, he wins the sweepstake because he can take that little drink of vomit. He can do the vomit, but he can hold a bit back. And that's really impressive. So you get a double, <laughs> get a little flop afterwards into the loo. And, um, you know, that's talent. Probably not the answer you're expecting. Yeah. Um, anyway, yes, at the bit further back. It's wonderful to see such a rich, varied, and talented cast uh, in an episode that raises so many profound issues, uh, which will clearly be played out through the series. So I can't wait to see the rest of it. I've got a different justice, well, I think it's a justice issue, but you may not think it's a justice issue. I'd be very interested in the panel's perception of the percentage of black and minority ethnic people working on the UK crew. Mm. So, uh, uh, should I field that one? You better, because you were... Yeah, it's absolutely right. Um, it is a consistent uh, endeavor to go, oh, we need, I, I was constantly saying, well, we, I need to see more key departmental roles taken by ethnic BAME individuals. And I constantly am hitting up against the, well, for that person to become in that position, they need to be insured to have that position. And they haven't reached that kind of level of education for qualification for that uh, insurance level, which puzzles and perplexes me wherever I go. So there seems to be a number of, of uh, ongoing education issues within the industry that is thwarting an easy drive towards departmental heads within. And it may be because there isn't the opportunities that are offered. But there aren't going to be opportunities unless people are offered. So it is a catch-22, and it is a real trouble. It's, pro it's, it's, it's problematic. Every character I play a little bit stays with me. It's like a, like a residue. And I think uh, Kate's is one that I'm determined to keep for the rest of my life. Um, her resilience, um, her defiance. Uh, she is the strongest, I do understand she's not real, person I know. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, her pursuit of the truth um, is unique um, and she should be, uh, an, uh, you know, praised and comforted for that. So I, I think I'm a bit stronger. Uh, I'm a bit more defiant. Uh, and I'm a bit more curious. I'd say my education uh, didn't give me the gift of curiosity. 
and this script uh, is part of what, uh, and Kate is part of what led me to be a more curious person just about everything, everything. So yes, thank you very much for the, the piece. I thought it was really excellent. And it was very interesting for, to have a sort of Eurocentric view of Africa. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask is actually to both Harriet and to Michaela is this issue of the role of women um, and the parts that you get offered, whether it's age range, and also the issue of intersectionality as well, which comes in because you in the uh, uh, play are a white woman who has a black daughter. And so there are, there are different experiences that each women have. So what was the approach, what approach did you have towards the issue of intersectionality regarding a black woman and a white woman? First, okay, so the, I think the unique thing here is that Kate has no memory of her life before moving to the West. So essentially she, is, she has been shaped entirely by her mom and by the West. And I would imagine in the imaginary backstory of our relationship that as Kate grows up and she's got some amazing lines coming up, it's all coming up, uh, but you realize how uh, in this situation, mother and daughter can't just be mother and daughter because there's a huge part of her past that she can't remember and she's living in pretty much an entirely white world. She's watching entirely white things on TV. She's seeing her absence, and that's what she grows up with. And I think her mom tries her best, um, but struggles with that. I, I can only say that without spoiling the, the show. <laughs> I really appreciated the way the script doesn't sort of hammer that on the head. It's just there, and you, you kind of accept that you sort of give people the credit to know that they know that there's this imbalance. At least I, I imagine that, you know, Eve is very aware of the fact that this child has not grown up on a level playing field, but it's just, you know, you, you face just that thing where you can only do what you know and they can, they can only do what they know. It's like, it's... It, it throws it into relief without anybody kind of going, oh my God, beating themselves on the chest, so, you know, what can I do? Either. But it, do, it is a strange situation because you don't seem to have any black friends. My, my assistant in the chambers is a boyfriend, we, we, you know, oh, yeah, we find yeah, out. Yeah. But um, you've gone straight into this world and of course you might have rebelled. You might, you know, maybe another, another person from another background would have been more, you know, I'm going to do the opposite of what my mother wants me to do. But because of her many-layered insecurity that she starts life with, she will probably sort of go into those legal chambers and follow her mother's steps more than somebody else might. It, Possibly. I mean, all I can say is just watch two and three. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, it, it, play, it, it all plays the out. The story is, honestly, the story is the story. And you see how she <laughs> maneuvers and navigates through a world in which, really, aesthetically, she doesn't belong in. And 
it's all there and we get to see that. It's, it was, I totally get your question. And in fact, some of the things, it's, it's a dysfunctional relationship. So that, that, that intimacy that you suggest in the question, didn't, there's a brittleness to this relationship, has love, and I think there is, is in, the, in the brief moment we've seen it there, that there is a love that's projected upon the relationship, but there's also a, a strong carapace that the mother has placed a protective carapace over this child, and that's got a crack. And it's the cracking of it that makes the drama and our inquiry really interesting. Because there is so much what you've asked within that carapace, and once it cracks, through kind of no, none of her construction really, it just does in mm. the consequent episodes. And she then has to break out through it. And the person that we leave, as I think I've said earlier, the person that we leave at the end of the episode, kind of a poor forked animal in some way in the middle of nowhere with nothing, is so much more profoundly in possession of herself than she is with all this privilege and all this staff, this carapace that's apparently protecting her at its start. So that's the kind of propulsion, but it's kind of dysfunctional. So your yeah. question doesn't get completely attended to because it was always slightly wrongly set up. And you'll also learn as, as the, the, the series progresses how, in, was it impossible uh, before, before this sort of confluence of events, it was impossible to, uh, to there was a whole bit of her story that I could not tell. Yeah. Um, which makes for a terrible conflict inside that, that you know, you'd want to be very straight and very honest with your child, but there are ways you absolutely can't be um, because of the circumstances. We've got time for one more, just, uh, yeah, just down the front. So all of you on that, it just is a motive and exceptional piece of work. Um, I'm still in my feelings about it. But um, my question is to Michaela, actually, and um, you made a comment about Kate and the absence that she saw. And I guess every time I see you on screen, part of it is your beauty and being fed in a way as a black woman. And I, I wonder what you would say to um, yourself or to an aspiring actress, writer, content writer, if you knew what you knew now at the beginning? Ooh. <laughs> <sighs> Not that you're that old. <laughs> I feel, I feel it. Yeah, so do I. But I have. Uh, what would I say? Something along the lines of the strength is in you to remain dedicated to integrity and to morals and to the truth and to sharing any power you gain uh, to never forget anyone else. Always remember. It's a perfect way to end it. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> good thank, thank you. 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 Thank you.